Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know, and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Today, we're welcoming Finn Murphy, newly named GP at Frontline Ventures, one of Europe's leading back-to-back enterprises enterprise VC firms. Finn is a true product and growth marketing person turned VC, looking to find and help grow the best new business ideas in Europe and the US. As a teenager, Finn wanted to be a professional ocean racer, which got him learning how to work in rough conditions, get a job you have no business having, work in a team, and what to do when a job isn't right for you. He then went on to ace mechanical engineering at maths at Trinity College, start a series of startups that all brought with them a bunch of learnings and which finally got him into VC with Frontline Ventures. Want to be on top of who the best up and coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Finn, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you with us. No, it's great. Thanks so much for having me on, Andres. We've been trying to get this done for a while, so it's great to finally be on EUVC. Uh, we're huge fans of Frontline, so we're happy to now have you on. We, of course, had Will on back nine months ago or 12 or so, nearing that. So we're super happy to now have you with us, Finn. Before we really jump into it, I want us to take the time to hear a bit more about you because you've recently been named a partner at Frontline and that's, of course, an awesome feat in itself. <laughs> so first of all, congratulations on that. And secondly, now tell us more. What's it been like? What made it possible? What advice would you give to all the aspiring managers hoping to do the same thing as you? Oh, gosh. Okay, so I'll go back to the, like, the drawing board. I don't know. It's kind of a funny one because I got into VC with the intention of doing it for 18 months and then starting a company. But I kind of, like literally one of my mentors advised me, I had a couple of different options. I was There was a head of growth role at a Series B company. There was a blockchain like consulting gig, which like retrospectively was insane. It was start my own company or it was do VC. And one of my mentors was like, oh, just go do VC for 18 months. You'll learn everything you need to know. You'll get the network. You'll get plugged in. You'll be ready to start a company. It's kind of like someone advising you to like, oh, yeah, just try drugs for 18 months. <laughs> It'll be totally fine. I'd met Frontline when I'd been running my own startup. And then when I'd been working in a growth role in another kind of Series A company, the job posting the Frontline put up was they were just hiring an analyst. And I was just kind of the company I'd been working for, the founders that had a big falling out, like wasn't a good culture, everything was bad. And I was like, I need to go do something else. Like I went into VC with like no assumption about what it was. And like on my first day, I turned to Will, like one of the partners of Frontline. And I was like, so like, what does one do? What do you do with this job? And he was like, oh, just go and like meet all the interesting people you know in tech and startups and ask them what they're doing and to introduce you to other interesting people you know. So anyway, I did that for about like three months. Then I came back and was like, hey, so I've done that. And they were like, okay, great. We were really busy. So now we can actually onboard you. So this was kind of my initial side of VC. Yeah, it was kind of funny. And it's like the benefit of being at a pre-seed and seed fund is like it's so people orientated that like I have just kind of always kept that just find interesting people working on interesting ideas and ask them who their most interesting friends are. 
And over time, it just becomes this really fortuitous loop because if you're interested in people's crazy ideas and you get as this pre-seed or seed investor to be like the first person who believes in them enough to give them money, it's just such a reinforcing circle of the people you backed at the earliest stages. Like the first investment I ever made at Frontline, I've like basically written off almost twice. Like the founders are just so tenacious. You get like an email being like, hey, we just raised our Series A from a US tier one fund. You're like, wait, what? This is amazing. So I think the one thing I'd say, it's like, I'm like going through the various steps, like 18 months in, Frontline made me a principal. So I was like, I'll stay for another year. And then 18 months after that, I was trying to decide again what I wanted to do. And I said, like, you know, well, like, if I want to commit to this job and this industry for a really long time and commit to being a frontline, you know, we had a conversation around joining the partnership. And I think that's the thing I've realized now is, like, if you're going in at a more junior level, you have to play a really long-term game. And because, like, why else would anyone make you a partner? Why else would people want to work with you if you're not going to be around over a very long period of time? Because everyone knows how these things compound. And it's just that time in the market, those relationships, people just knowing who you are and knowing that you're going to be in venture, I think give you a real advantage, particularly if you're trying to become a manager or trying to become a partner. And now I'm still just like trying to figure out what that means to a certain extent. (laughs) Because at the end of the day, it's still like now you've got fund manager responsibilities and more thought around portfolio construction. It was another thing when we were talking about performance reviews when I was early on in Frontline. It's like there are people who are great at sorting deal flow. There are people who are really good at diligence. There are people who write great memos. And like all of that stuff is important. Like networking is important. At the end of the day, it's kind of harsh because nobody wants to judge you on have you done good investments because you can't know. All of the other stuff is like this, like the inputs to the function. And the function is, did you do a good deal? And like some people roll over out of bed and invest in a unicorn. And like that's the function. (laughs) Other people like write blogs, do podcasts, write amazing diligence notes, do investor memos, and like never actually get the inputs to produce that output. That's kind of the requirement of the job. So I think that was the thing for me was just like asking a partnership to like invest in interesting people who you support, who you think are good. And like, again, like some of the people who I thought were going to be amazing have the companies haven't gone anywhere. Some of the people who have been like, oh God, this is not going well. They come back and are like, well, actually we're smashing it. So it's kind of quite a humbling experience as you go through those steps to be like, oh, I actually don't know that much, but hopefully I'm figuring stuff out as I move forward. How long exactly did you spend in, you know, analyst, associate, principal world before graduating to partner? So it would have been just less than three years. It was kind of like about a year and a half as a sort of analyst associate and then about a year and a half in a sort of principal role before we had the conversation about staying around long term. Everyone talks about like VC career progression. You only get to move funds once. You only get like certain levels. You're very poachable. So like associates are very poachable. Principals are very poachable. Partners, less so, because there's a whole lot of stuff kind of imprinted in. Again, I don't know if I'm good yet, but like everyone knows who the signaling good people are. So all of the good people are always poached, like actively attempting to be poached. I think that's the thing when you're trying to break in. Once you're inside the bubble and people know who you are, if you can be good, it becomes like progressively easier to continue to compound that. But getting inside that bubble 
I was fortunate and someone sent me Will's Twitter post about an analyst hire. Other people spend a lot of time grinding and getting to know people and waiting for the right opportunity. But I think that was the thing for me was just like once you're in, get to know people, get to do what you need to do to create enough of these variables to go into that function to try to produce an output that looks like, oh, that might be a good company. It's funny because David and I, we spoke the other day at uh, at an event for people wanting to break into VC. My advice is if you aren't in yet, then just try and act like you are <laughs> because you need to show that you can actually do the work and that your role makes sense in the industry because if you're just sending out applications, that's going to be a tough route. <laughs> oh, completely. Like partners from Sequoia to Lightspeed to local frontline, like everyone says it, the key leading indicator of a successful early career VC is, like, and I hate to use the American ability to hustle, can you get a, a thousand pound check into the next unicorn out of the UK? Because then people ask, how did you do that? And it's like, oh, I costed the CEO at an event. Yeah. And was like, I love your company. Please let me invest. Yeah. VC is such a kind of like quasi-degenerate industry where we <laughs> think we're very, like, we think we're very prestigious. But like at the end of the day, in the good companies, you're like begging, being yeah. like, please, sir, please sell me some of your business. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's like, if you can do the analysis, you can do whatever, but like you need to be able to put yourself out there. And like you said, acting like you're in, if you treat yourself for like where you are and like your station in your career or whatever, you're never going to accost the CEO of a company and be like, please take a thousand pound check from me. Because like, why should they? I think you have to have that assumption of like, they should because I'm X, Y, or Z. Shifting topics a bit. You know that we at EVC are all about connecting the industry. We're trying to do our best there. And in our first conversation, we understood that this is something that you also share. So it's kind of a common ground here. So that's cool. And I'd love to hear you develop a bit on that thought. What's your perception of the state of collaboration in the VC industry, particularly in Europe? And what do you think we need moving forward? One thing that since we last spoke around collaboration that I think has changed is um, collaboration is actually kind of dependent on market conditions a little bit. So probably like four or five months ago when we last spoke, people were in a very uncollaborative mood because it was possible for you to lead around, take as much as possible, and you're massively economically incentivized to do that. If you meet a good company and you can own 20% of it within the constraints of your fund size and your check size, you should do that. There are downsides to it in the longer term, whereby like the fund, you're not bringing in funds who are going to send you other deals. You're not right. creating syndicates around the company that might be beneficial to them in the future. But from a pure financial investor headpoint, which does kick in for a lot of people, that is the right approach. I'm looking at a four million pound seed round at the moment. I'm looking at like a three million pound pre-seed round. Like, I'm not going to do them on my own. Like, that's banana. Like, you know, we've gotten 65 million pound funds for do the conversions, you can't lead a four million pound seed round because you're putting five percent of the fund into a first check in a company with seed level risk. It gets quite challenging after that. And I think that's what I've seen in sort of collaboration land is as the fund sizes increase, it becomes progressively more difficult to collaborate until the round sizes correspondingly increase. And then you're just back to where you were when you're like, oh, okay, now we're undersized. So now we want to collaborate because we want to have de-risking ability and we want to have different people around the table who can write follow-on checks. That's just the market conditions piece. There are certain players in the market who approach things different ways. Sequoia are new in the market, so we're playing a very collaborative approach. 
where they're saying, you know, if you bring us a deal, we will split it with you. That's what we're doing. That's working out for them. They've just done a ton of stuff in France with French funds because people know they can send stuff to them where they're not going to get muscled out. There's other later stage funds where they've been in Europe for a very long time. There's just less of an incentive because they have an associate in France. They have an associate in Germany. They have an associate that covers like, you know, outside London and the UK. So, you know, if they see something, it's like, well, maybe you said it to me early, but I was probably going to see it anyway. So there's just less of that incentive right now. It kind of varies depending on where you sit in the market, where your fund size is and how you're playing. And I was trying to think like, there's always going to be someone who comes in if everyone else is collaborating, someone's going to try to come in and blow things up. So I think it depends on like how you want to sort of play the game so to speak. And, you know, like even I had a conversation with a Series A GP. I was kind of half joking with her. And they were like, oh, we're rethinking our early stage strategy. And I was like, oh, so are you going to steal the seed rounds from the seed funds? Or are you going to like split us with them? And she was like, no, I'd rather you just tell me about them straight away. And if they're good, I'll mark them up, which is like partly branding. <laughs> but also if you're going to be a good Series A fund, be a good Series A fund. If you're going to be a good seed fund, be a good seed fund. But the incentives as the funds get so much larger... And the number of companies doesn't increase at the same rate as the number of funds. I think that is always going to create that kind of friction. If slush is anything to go by, like VCs in Europe love getting together. They love having a few drinks together. They love gossiping about the markets. I've been thinking about this a lot as, is there a way to encourage collaboration? And I think there'll always be collaboration stage to stage. But I think the collaboration within the stage around, like whether it's pre-seed or within seed or within series A, will always be slightly dependent on the market conditions and how they're actually changing over time. I'm actually interested in a kind of a follow-up question because you're talking about how the market conditions shifted, you know, collaboration in the VC space. How do you feel it has impacted the ability to act quickly? If you're not used to collaborating, you have to build that up, as you were saying, build that syndicate around you. Do you feel that there's like this point where you become a bit more laggy and you're unable to be as quick and then that just catches up and how do you deal with that? Oh, yeah. I suppose like in the speed of the market, like... I mean, I still think European VC relative to US VC is slow. It just is. If you really want to win an investment in a company in Europe, if you can turn them around a term sheet in 48 hours with the work, hands down, you're just so much faster than anyone else that you have a very high probability of getting in. I think on the collaboration side around speed, you're right. And this is like, again, the kind of perverse incentive. If you've done all the work to get a company a term sheet in two days and the company's willing to sign with you, and I've had this scenario before where we did collaborate when we didn't have to. I'm so glad we did that because I thought it was good having them on board. But I get the time you're like, you're now in the driver's seats. The company is asking you, hey, I've chosen you as my lead partner. What should I do? And by that stage, if it was competitive and other people have missed out and lost, everyone goes from like, our minimum is 10%. We absolutely will not go below that to how much is available. That shift again, you're, the founders are asking you as the lead if you've gone in early what to do. It's all kind of, again, retrospective where there are companies where we own 20% of where I'm like, oh, it would actually be great to have another fund around the table because it's taking longer than we thought it would. There's companies that are growing like absolute rocket ships that we could have owned 25% of that we own 12 and a half. So I think like so much of the like retrospection around collaboration and speed is in the, it can be good in hindsight. At the time, I think it's just, again, like picking your strategy and making it work. In this fund, we have decided to be collaborative We've decided that the average ownership we're going to get is like 12.5%. 
I think that's working well for us. I think the problem is like when you're thinking about an X-Phone strategy, you're trying to think about what the market conditions are going to be then, which is almost impossible once again. So maybe for me and the thing I've realized and like it's going to vary on the person is like I like being collaborative. I like working with other funds. Maybe long term that hurts my performance, which I'll deal with at that point. But if it's the way we like doing the job and it's the way we want to be, then that's how I would almost think about it. Now, how I think about it as a VC is like, how do you want to do the job? and Who do you want to be known as in the market? Because again, I think all these things are super long term. And like someone actually did ask me this a GP who's known for being very aggressive and doing the whole rounds. And she was like, where do you get all your deal flow? I was like, oh, people send me stuff. She's like, why do they do that? Like, (laughs) yeah, 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 because I'm not going to be a dick about it. So like, that's a long-term gain. Owning 20% of the company that gets marked up in six months and you're like, oh, it's going to burn. No, owning 12 instead of 20 in a company that gets marked up in six months. Yeah, maybe in the very long term, it plays out differently. But like, if it's going to be a really successful company, it's going to be a big impact on your fund anyway. While the longer term game, I think, is in relationships and how people perceive you and like how things are going to play out over the, like, the next like five to 10 years. We have for a long time had a very close connection in valuations of companies, B2B SaaS companies as you guys are investing in, very closely tied to metrics and actually being based on fundamentals inside the companies. It's very obvious that now it's more about who wants to get in in the follow-on rounds and how much do they want to get in. And as such, it's gotten quite disconnected from what's actually going on inside the companies. And I'm a bit curious, how do you think about this inside Frontline? There's a couple of different schools of thought around this. There's like, how big an exit are you underwriting? Mm -hmm. So say you're going in with 10% ownership, you're expecting to get diluted down to 5% by exit, and you're going in at like a 30 million post. You need that company to generate like a 1.5 billion exit if you'd return your funds. Like everyone's like, oh, returning the fund is great. And it's like, no, you have to return. Three, like, That's true, thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and like three separate LPs have been like, oh, our new seed fund bar is 5x net, yeah. net of fees and carry, which is like almost like, I think it's like six and a half gross your fund. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, to hit the new bar for a top-tier LP, you're looking at a $100 million seed fund returning $650 million. And I think, like, we're all kind of playing this game to a certain degree. The outliers are so much bigger than anyone ever thought they were going to be that that's going to create market conditions that kind of ride all the way up. If you look at where SaaS companies went public, previously, five years ago, there was, like, a huge spike between, like, $2 billion valuation and like a $7 billion valuation. And that was where most people went public. Now there's this like huge distribution between like yeah. five and 50 in the public markets. Yeah. So I think like when you're trying to assess a company, there are two ways to do it. There's how much dilution are the founders willing to take on and how much capital do they need to hit a future target. So founders don't want to take on more than 25% dilution and they're going to tell you how much money they want to raise. If it's a competitive round, whatever amount they've said and whatever, it, like 25, 25%, you know, you know, 4x that, that's going to be the valuation. Yeah. If it's not competitive, it's a very different story. And then you're in more of a like, but again, if you're a professional investor, you don't want to own more than, like in particular in the seed round or pre-seed round, like you don't want to own more than 25% of these companies because yeah. it just screws you over in the future. So you're trying to think of that way of getting that balance right 
like I saw a good uh, tweet recently where one investor was like, I've had three companies all at the same ARR number. Like I think it was $2 million ARR raised at 20 million posts, 250 million posts and a 1.5 billion posts. That does sound insane. It's and it is like there's an element of it that's completely bananas. But it's funny as I've spent more time in this, the companies that grow the fastest grow so much faster than the ones doing well. Yeah. I didn't appreciate it until one of our companies this year, they come back to you and they're like, tripled our revenue this week. <laughs> we're like, you were already doing 150K ARR. And they're like, yeah, no, now we're at 500. These are companies that they're just geared in a different way. When you're making these investments, particularly at Siege, there's always this fear that it's a local maximum. Or like even at Series A, it's like, oh, is this the local maximum? And then you're kind of underwriting for the team. It's like, well, if it's the local max, like there's always going to be a slowdown. Like every company in the good ones, it's never aggressive. But usually you want to try to get them just on that slope on the way up when you're investing. Because if you wait too long, you're going to pay too much, you're going to miss it. But to go back to the LP point, doing seed brands at like 6 to 10 million posts, seed funds owning like 15 to 20% of some of these SaaS companies, if they are as big as the outcomes suggest, a bunch of fund ventures are going to return like 5 to 10x. The GPs are going to make loads of cash. And then there's going to be another wave of like everyone's expectations will be, oh, look how amazing that venture was. And then it's like, yeah, well, that was when we used to own 20% of a company for a million dollars. Now a million buys you 3%. Yeah. So like, yeah, there's been a 4x increase in the district. And I, I did a piece of analysis on this. Like if you look at the exit outcomes, the outcomes are way bigger. And the outcomes, at least last August, were way ahead of the increase in valuations. You know, like valuations were up like 2x at seed, but the average exit outcome was up like 5x. It's like everything in capitalism. There's a reason why the hedge funds are coming down to our level. You know that Jeff Bezos quote? It's like, your margin is my opportunity. Uh, hey. Like there are GPs making billions of dollars in carry. I will come for you. You should not be making that much money. Uh, and like, that's the best thing about capitalism, at least if it works effectively, is there is a lot of money out there. There are a lot of people chasing returns. And like in any market, those margins are going to be squeezed down over time. So like, you know, bond traders in the 80s, LBOs in the 90s, hedge funds in the early 2000s, like everyone was making bananas money. Like VC always kind of made a little money, but it was like a small group of funds that made most of it. I think what will end up happening now is going to be the same thing. There's going to be a whole load of like, you know, the KKRs and the Bridgewaters and everything. And we'll look forward in 10 years time and like Bridgewater posts like, Blah, returns at the moment, you know, even Renaissance, like some of the quant hedge funds, like all of these things get competitive to a point of the margin being squeezed. And I think VC will be the same. And then we'll probably be looking at all the like crypto multi-billionaires and their funds being like, ha ha ha, we're so smart until <laughs> everyone's like, oh, great, we're going to come for you too. And then there'll be something doing like, God knows what, selling like land on Mars. And they'll be like, oh, the Martian property speculators, those are the guys. Like, they know what's up. Yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of, sorry, I know that was a bit of a like, long way to go around it. <laughs> nah, nah, but it's completely right. And it also ties into uh, the ownership percentages that we just spoke about. You know, with these amazingly big outcomes, it's about getting into those <laughs> outliers, right? And that also drives, I guess, your portfolio construction theory, right? Oh, yeah. And that's, and it's all a world of progress now. Like, I would say that's like one of the more contentious things we have to talk about at the moment is like effectively 
you only have so much capital that you can allocate to so many companies and you're trying to figure out like they're all raising so soon and so quickly again you're taking we're investing earlier because companies are going into market earlier so there's more product risk there's more market risk like you're trying your best to underwrite the team risk but like even then when you're being asked to write a big follow-on check at the series a not that much has changed and I think that yeah, it's for just me, more expensive now. <laughs> it's literally more expensive. You're just like, like in some cases, you're like, okay, fair enough. But that's because, like, in some cases, we've invested in teams with nothing. So it's like, okay, they've gone from nothing to something. But like, what's that something going to be? There used to be this like view of double down on your winners. Your winners are where you should allocate all your capital. But I'm like, yeah, but if 70% of your portfolio raise follow-on rounds within 12 months of you investing yeah, in them. How much has happened? Yeah, yeah. And like, how can you really discern who the, like I said, like the first company I invested in three years ago, like last January, we did like a $150,000 bridge just so they wouldn't run out of money. They've raised like a hodgepodge of money. They're the most tenacious founders out there. But you would have been like, this is not going to happen. And then you just get a note. It's like, yeah, Series A term sheet signed. See you later. How could you ever possibly know that that was going to be the one? Because it was such a sideways journey. I've been arguing this for some time. And people have been saying, you're stupid, Andres. When I say, why do you keep allocating so much to reserves? Because so much or not much is happening from Series C or Pre-Seed to Series A. So it's just a more expensive bet, basically. But you don't know more. It's just so different now than before. So... I'm glad to hear someone actually on this show saying that nah, there is actually good reason to double down in the beginning and then hope for the best. <laughs> well, I, I think it's also like, again, you know, if you think in that long term, you are taking a different risk adjusted play, but like the outcomes are so much bigger. If you can allocate a big check in the A with confidence that you have a lot more information, like I was kind of arguing like, like rather than being like, let's put more into the seed, I was like, why not? Like rather than an opportunity fund to randomly select seed companies, just raise a select fund. And when you have information asymmetry and you have a close relationship with the CEOs, just preemptively do the A's in the companies where you have high conviction on. The ability to gain that information asymmetry is getting sufficiently compressed now that I don't know if that would actually work. But like, if you look at it on paper, Yes, obviously the best returns are from the first check yeah. every single time. But like, it's kind of also, you know, I think it was like IA were talking to us about um, IA Ventures are a seed fund in New York. And like, they put money into like the Digital Ocean Series E out of the fund, at like a 1.5 billion valuation. Because they're like, yeah, we're very confident on like a minimum 10x upside from here. And you're just like, okay, well, like, you know, it's like your confidence interval. Well, if I have a very high confidence interval on like a 10x versus a very low confidence interval on a 100x at a seed round, like again, yeah, obviously if the 100x works out, it's going to be better returns. But for you as a manager, it's like... It's difficult. Yeah, yeah, where do you put the money? I'm guessing that you have hurdle rate in frontline funds as well. And have you seen, maybe not in your fund specifically, but do you see GPs thinking and reacting differently after they achieve the hurdle rate and they get into carry mode? Yeah, it's a good question. There's a lot of people in VC now who are not already independently wealthy. I think that's great yep. that the industry's changed in that way. But I do think that's going to change because from an LP perspective, again, if LPs are underwriting a 5X, like you might have an opportunity to take cash off the table, but like every LP I've spoken to, they were like, worst thing you can ever do. Your winners are the easiest ones to sell down into. They're the easiest ones to get over the hurdle rate. Like, you know, get over your hurdle rate, get into carry. 
I have this conversation with our CEOs. We're basically like, I kind of have this view where every decision you make, the important decision that increases your probability of like wild outlier success should also increase your probability of spectacular failure. Like just <laughs> like complete wipeout. And like, and if it doesn't, it's a middling decision and like yeah. do it that way. And as a fund manager, I think that's like super highlighted. It's like putting 100% of your fund into one investment does increase your probability of like wild outlier success <laughs> and also going to zero. The way I think about framing like fund management decisions are like, yeah, you can get into carry, great. You can behave differently. But like, do you want to play this game for the next 10 years? Because like, you know, the Horsley Bridges, the endowments, the sophisticated LPs, they look at your portfolio construction. They look where you sold businesses, Dan. If it's like, oh, great, you sold like 40% in your winner because you wanted to take on a carry check. Why did you do that if you're incentivized for the long term? And like, I totally get why people do because I also totally get why founders sell secondary when they could have made more money in the long run. Even things like hurdle rates or if anything, I mean, it's only for the top managers, but like hurdle rates are going in the inverse now where it's now like, literally an inverse hurdle where it's like, oh, great. Well, now we've done 2.5 X net. So now you're paying 33% carry. I don't know if that's going to last, but I think in top managers, like a lot is going to go. Some of the behavior is not great, like charging stupid fees on SPVs or like unsophisticated investors paying 25% carry on an SPV that's like layered into another vehicle. It's like <laughs> fees all the way down. I think the behavior is more driven around, and this is maybe a comment on European VC is, um, at least in the past, and this is like from talking to old GPs, if you return 2x on your funds, you go out to the same group of LPs, they had a vector allocation, they didn't really care about it. And as long as you were returning 2x and you weren't investing in any like weapons, porn and alcohol, you would get your money. But like, who wants to do that? Like, what's the point? Again, like if you 0x your fund and lose all your money, that was a like death sentence. <laughs> because LPs just don't think the same way. Like, you know, a lot of them don't think right. that way. But like, again, if you're going to LPs, I'm like, I would much rather be like, hey, this is either going to be a 10x fund or it's going to be a 0x fund. And if you don't want to invest in me and I know I'm not good at this and I can go do something else, those are the decisions I've seen when I've observed other GPs. It's like, it's where are you falling on that spectrum? Because nobody wants to fail. Everyone wants to have wild success. Yeah. But in VC, it's actually not as hard to middle you know if you want to middle that's actually a decision you can make it's not that it's easy but i think that is as a fund manager something that you can achieve pretty in a more straightforward way i have a completely off script question here <laughs> do you have any insights or thoughts on the lp landscape across europe and why do i ask this it's because i come from the south of europe and i know of some geographies that are much less developed compared to others. And I think there is a big difference in how LPs look at returns. <laughs> and so some LPs, I would actually say, that I've had an interaction with, I would actually say they would be happy with a 2-3x. They would be extremely happy. But then you catch a plane, go to the UK. Ah, that's not true anymore, <laughs> right? What are your thoughts around that? Have you had any kind of conversations and the experience around that? It is quite interesting. And I actually saw this as well. There was a good post about like the paradox of a multi-stage, like multi-billion dollar asset manager is like once you're huge, LPs don't want 100% IRRs. They want it consistently. They don't want you fucking around with their money. And that kicks in for everyone. I saw it was this really good quote about like why someone was like George Soros was like the only true hedge fund manager because like he'd be up 50% in March and any other manager would just start playing a conservative year. And he'd be like, no, 
let's fucking go. And then they go up to like 180 in June. And then they'd be down 6% in August. Like literally the fund would be like this, but it was like, it was actually like a pure alpha seeking investment strategy. While that's not what most LPs want. Like LPs want you, they're just like, if you could guarantee me a 10% IRR, especially in the current environment, like 100%, that's what they want. But it's also not what they kind of plan for. There's a lot of people selling a 10% IRR. Not a lot of people will deliver it. And like my interactions with LPs have generally been, unfortunately, I think a lot of European LPs as well, it's very relationship-driven. It's very network, family office. I was kind of half-joking where like, a lot of the GPs in Europe, if you chase their lineage, it probably runs back to Charlemagne. I'm kind of half joking, but like there is an element to that and like who's connected to those family offices. Because again, and this is maybe something I've learned as well, is like even the sophisticated LPs are relationship driven. They're not driven by a model that says you're going to get 10%. In the US, a lot of those family offices and a lot of that wealth are in tech and venture relationships they've always invested in funds a lot of european family offices and a lot of european money aren't that connected and aren't in the relationships and then that leaves you with the more like the banks and the corporates where again it might not be a better relationship but it's less about the financial returns profile so then you're on to who are the actual people seeking financial returns and like it really does go back to the US guys. It's the Horsley Bridges. And actually now maybe a little bit the pension funds, where like the pension funds are through a kind of like forced, like pension funds were never supposed to pay people till they were like 90. Like everyone's supposed to, under the pension fund model, everyone's supposed to die at like 73. So now you've all of these funds who are like, oh shit, we need to like boost our yields. And I actually do think that's going to force them into VC as an asset class. If I'm a pension fund, I want to buy bonds that yield 6% a year, but I can't do that. Then I get forced into PE, then I get forced into hedge funds. Now I'm going to get forced into BC. So I think it changes, but I think the one thing I've realized from the LP landscape is it's not really about the returns just yet. It's about the understanding of the asset class, the relationship you have with them, what their incentive is aside from absolute returns. But I would hope that changes because like we just can't go on with like EIF having to cornerstone like every fund in Europe. They're good, like EIF are great, but like our entire industry in Europe is propped up basically by BBB in the UK and EIF in Europe. And that's great. And they've seeded the entire industry. But like, oh yeah, I really hope it does change where there's more institutional sources, more family offices that do start to come downstream. Yeah, because my experience also showed me that specifically first-time funds is that everyone's waiting for these big players to make the decision. <laughs> that's just that's such a strong signaling power, right? These big players invest, these big institutional players invest. Everyone does. If they don't, they don't, <laughs> right? I was chatting to a friend of mine who's a fundraiser for a PE firm, and yeah. he was like, it's all about momentum. You just go and hit them all same time like if you're not in this is the close this is what we're doing i do think it's funny where like a lot of the advice we give startups about fundraising we're like no no we're different we're yeah. like you know vc funds it's totally different and it's like no you want to go out get a couple of key people involved and be like hey this is the deal this is what we're closing these are the terms are you in and like everyone's like oh like lps don't work like that I absolutely guarantee you they do. If an LP gets a call and goes, oh, there's a $30 million allocation in the next benchmark fund or the next Sequoia fund, they will get the work done and they'll get it done very quickly. 
I know not everyone is that. There's elements that fund managers particularly probably can take from the fundraising process we advise to our startups that should go in the other direction. It is funny, like I think still even a lot of institutional LPs, it genuinely does, like as it is with startups as well, do I like this person? It's how the entire world works. I think to think that LP, GP fundraising relationships would be different. Yeah, it wouldn't really make a lot of sense. So on that note, we can say to our listeners that they can go to Frontline's website and read your article on uh, how to create FOMO uh, for startups, because that's what they should be thinking about for their own funds. Probably a few tweaks need to be made to that. I think I'm <laughs> going to end up being responsible for raising our next our next fund, so I can report back in a year when I'll probably look about like 40 years older than I do now, yeah. and just be like, I, I was so wrong. I was, I was so <laughs> I would actually love to double click on your experience going from principal to GP on this specific topic, because typically LP relations is not something that associates and principals deal with, but it's something that when you get to the GP level, it's part of the job. So I'm curious to hear uh, how you have transitioned, what you've had to learn and unlearn. It does take years to build the relationship to the point where someone will, like, I'll give you the, like, this is a classic example. So like, I said frontline, basically, we were raising our third seed fund. And like, I have a bunch of LP relationships. This is advice to principals, be a pre-partner. Like, your relationships are not the fund's relationships. Up until you're a partner, they're your relationships. And a lot of funds try to bend that power dynamic. That's how it should be. As soon as you become a partner, they're the fund's relationships. They're the rest of your partnership's relationships. And I think that's a really important distinction. I said this when we were raising our third seed fund and I was like trying to become partner. I have an, L- an LP who I'd built a relationship with over three years and they committed to put half a million dollars into the fund over a WhatsApp message because I was like, hey, will you do this? But like, again, that was like my relationship becoming a partner, becoming the fund relationship. And I think that's a really... Like, even as a junior investor, like, NLPs take many shapes and forms. Like, there's a lot of startup CEOs that over time, when they're successful, will become potential LPs. Founders I've invested in who've raised, like, Series B+, plus, I've spoken to them about, like, they commit, not a lot, but, like, you know, quarter of a million dollars into a fund. And, like, as a junior investor, you can start to build those relationships up as well. But, yeah, I think that was, like, the biggest learning is, like, because... Again, once people are in the funds, like they're committing to a fund for like 10 years, they're committing their money and their trust to you as well. I was always very conscious that like up until you're a partner and you have meaningful economics and you're in the fund, like they're your relationships. Because like the partner and the partnership should share their relationships with juniors in the fund freely. But I think that for me was like the philosophical trade-off along the way. And as soon as you're a partner, you need to be bringing money into the fund. It may not be your skill set or your core strength, but like if you're an amazing investor with amazing founder relationships, you can get a founder to commit to your fund. It might not be a lot, but I think even a small amount is quite meaningful. I've got two questions before we go to the quickfire fin. You've just recently published an article on Sifted on the lack of European startups' ability to or willingness to share in the spoils with their operators, meaning that I think you had the case example with Klarna only minting 75 millionaires, uh, and they're now at a 45 billion euro uh, valuation or something like that. Whereas you have Facebook that has generated thousands of millionaires and Google the same. Flipping this to the GP side or to the VC side, are the funds in Europe good enough at sharing the spoils with their teams? 
and also contrast that to the US if you can? So funnily enough, there's a Google spreadsheet, like a secret spreadsheet of everyone's <laughs> anonymous comp in it. From what I know, it's very fund by fund. Like some funds are the worst. <laughs> and some funds like one GP will have like 85% of the economics. Across the board, I would say it's generally good. One thing I think funds in Europe do badly, and actually we potentially could do differently as well, is like I'm a big proponent of like everyone in the fund, everyone in your company, whether it's your office manager, whether it's your VP sales, everyone should have a stake in the upside because otherwise you can't talk about it. And maybe that's like a new school way of thinking about it. You don't want to be sitting there talking about it. It's like, oh, our equity is worth so much when the person sitting next to you is like, well, I don't have any of that. So now you're making me feel shit. <laughs> I think like one of the things where it's like, oh, analysts and associates don't get carry. And like, I think like in some cases that makes sense because there is some legal complexity around it. Like if they join and they leave and they're not around for that long, I think that would like change. Like you don't have to give them carry again. Like all of these things, it's like nobody has to give anything away. But I think that would be one meaningful change in Europe that actually could be, it's, again, it gets people to understand what it's all about, gets people even more incentivized. Because like even everyone has different carry structures. Like some people do deal by deal, some people do share in the fund. And like it creates these different incentive structures where like if you're deal by deal, if you're over capacity, but you see something awesome, you're obviously going to do that because you're like, oh, well, like my economics are all incentivized around me to be there versus like, you know, in another fund where it might be evenly split, there's no deal by deal. and It's just all split across the partners. It encourages a more collaborative environment internally. So from what I've seen and what I know, we're not worse than the US. And like every carry structure, I think, has its own demons to deal with oftentimes because people are like you know if there's one person wildly outperforming everyone else and they want to leave and someone else makes them an amazing offer the other gps have to make a decision around like do we want to keep this amazing person who's contributing to our upside but we have to cut into our own economics to keep them there that's the balance of the sport and it's kind of like the ultimate thing that i think is really interesting about vc is like it's a little bit more sport like like there's trading going on and there's like incentives in the team just because you were there the longest and you've helped build access to the capital long term are you the person generating the returns in the alpha like you obviously always get a level like founding gps people have been there for a long time always sit out at a level but like long term the carry and the economics skew to the people driving the biggest performance because if they're not getting incentivized where they are there are other people who want that and they will take them in and they'll incentivize them properly yeah uh, absolutely so now to my second question before the quick fire round i have to ask you how you think about strategic lps in frontline we have of course the big strategics like like corporates and so on mm. but more interestingly you know, you also talked about founders and bringing them on as LPs, and they, of course, play a strategic role as well. How do you think about this? And I'm also curious because with the small types or the founder types, there you have the issue around ticket sizes. How do you think about that? There's like a barbell of like, if you're using angel lists for a fund, it's super easy to bring in small LPs. If you get large enough now where you have, and, you know, a legal compliance team, you can all is because you can structure it. There's a little bit of a kind of like dead zone in the middle where it's hard to make those kind of strategic and smaller LPs work. 
one of my friends is raising a $400 million fund right now. And the minimum LP commitment is 50K. Hmm. Like 50K is still a lot of money for people, but like they know there is value in bringing people in at that level. I think it's very similar to how I would think about constructing rounds with respect to companies and angels. There are some people who will do absolutely nothing for you other than the money (laughs) or like, you know, maybe they'll look good on a slide deck and then there'll be other people who'll be really helpful. And it's always a barbell. Like people aren't moderately helpful. It's always either they've done nothing but bring the money, which is totally fine. That's what they're there to do. Or they've done a ton of work. I think on the strategic side, I think it's always slightly overblown. Like, and this is kind of funny from like, again, as you talk to GPs who've been around for a while, they were like, the best LPs never ask you or do anything. (laughs) You send them the capital calls and they wire the money and they commit to three funds and they don't ask any questions. I think the problem with any strategic LP is it's always going to introduce an overhead because for them to be strategic, there's a reason they're doing what they're doing. So whether that's like, reporting employment numbers across your portfolio, which is just the overhead of having to ask all of your portfolio once a quarter how many people work for them. And they're just like, fuck off, <laughs> like leave me alone. Not in all cases, but like, you know, and then you figure out ways of doing it yourself, but then it's an internal overhead that you're putting on your finance team and like figuring out yourself. So why are you doing it strategically? For me, it would be if four founders who I've invested in who haven't made a huge amount of money are all LPs in the fund. That's who other LPs who'd be writing, say, much larger checks are going to want to DD. You know, they're going to want to call your founders and they're going to want to say, hey, is Finn a good investor or frontline good investors? And if it's like, well, they're putting up 1% of their net worth into the fund, you can probably take it as a given that they think we're pretty good. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's how I think about strategic. It's like your own operational overhead burden, which in the early days, if you're using a company or fund manager, very easy. If you're in the later days and you have an internal team, good. But I wouldn't ever go out and seek a strategic LP because long term, I think it's just like, again, you want people who just pay their capital goals and can fund SPV up. Actually, the most strategic LP that you can possibly get is when your fund caps out and you have a $20 million pro rata fund in an absolute banger of a company. You want to be able to call someone up and say, it's like, hey, we've got two days to make a call. Really great company. We're running SPV with like 15% carry, like 50 points in fees. Will you do it? And you want an LP, it'll be like, yes. You want like the tiger global of LPs <laughs> is effectively yeah. what I would say is the dream. That makes sense. How about the LPAC? Do you in Frontline get a lot out of your LPAC or is it more like, nah, it's more the formal stuff? I think it's good to have a reporting structure of some sort where like you sit down twice a year and you like have to like write your thoughts out again, you know, because it's all <laughs> in your head. But it's like, do I think this is good? what needs to be done. But I think, yeah, out of the LPAC, it's more like a discussion, reporting, and a useful tool for you to be able to go back to them and say, it's like, hey, this is where we think everyone's at. This is who we think the top performers are. This is where we're going to be allocating money in the future. I don't think you'd want to be like meeting super regularly, but I think, you know, quarterly, twice a year, if you're getting a good reporting function for yourself, I think that can actually work really well. We always like to end our episodes with a quick fire round. That means quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? Let's go. <laughs> First question, and B2B SaaS, which areas excite you the most that other people don't really feel that excited about? Verticalized ERP software. 
big banger right now. Very, very dry, very boring. Yeah. What else is good? Tooling. I've done a lot of developer tools. There's a lot of tooling for software engineers working in software. Not a lot of tooling for real-world engineers working with software. Looking into that a good bit at the moment. I think those are, in terms of areas where people are less... Like, I could be wrong on both of them. The direction of travel yeah. looks right, but um, I think both of those areas are interesting. There's also SaaS for Web3 crypto stuff, which is not actually mm -hmm. crypto, but like all yeah. these like DAOs and NFT, like all of this stuff, you need ways of actually, man, if, if they are ever going to be things, they need tooling to actually keep them and support them. So those are kind of three areas where I think are not slightly less obvious, but from an enterprise B2B SaaS investor perspective, you can get your head around and get into. We've been doing a bunch of this, but like vertical SaaS for biotech, there's like a ton of opportunity in software for the biotechnology industry. And I think there's going to be just more and more money being pumped in there over the next couple of years. Second question, and maybe we should invite you back in a year to ask you again once you look older, <laughs> which is what would be your three top tips for emerging uh, VCs, obviously, you know, going through their first fundraise. Oh God. If you'd rather put it as not tips, but as what you yourself are kind of thinking of, feel free. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I don't know if I'm quite qualified to give people tips yet. <laughs> I do have to say, like, being available is like, so important unless you've like already ipo'd a company or you've already been wildly successful largely the only asset you have is your time so i think like it's an unfortunate thing where it's a lifestyle trade-off but like you have to be enormously available to your network your founders lps everyone at least for quite some, like a period of time um, because that is what you're bringing i think that's one thing that's like served me relatively well and that i'm gonna have to continue to do figuring out who your people are as well you're not going to like everyone equally. Like there are going to be people in the industry that you like spending time with. And it's not like, a, oh, fuck, I have to meet this person again. <laughs> and there's loads of them who are really good. And like, I like spending time with. But like, I've definitely seen younger managers as they come up through. And I think it's like, this is the unfortunate thing about VC in particular. It's very hard. It's like the same as being a founder. It's very hard not to like have your life and your job become very highly intermingled both from a friend's point of view a travel point of view everything that's coming around so i think like if you're gonna have to go down that route of like intermingling your personal life and your professional life you want to find your people within that professional world and that's still what i'm doing like spending time with the people who i like who are also in the industry probably lastly i would just say it's like so many people chasing the same deals and there's such a perverse and there's such an incentive to win be like oh they had 15 term sheets but we won like i get it and like i had been there when i was junior as well where it's like sick we won out and now i'm just like someone's like oh we already have five term sheets can you get me a decision by friday and i was like are you happy with the term sheets and i was like yeah i know we're pretty happy with some of them like absolutely amazing like I'm so, I'm so, I'm, Congrats. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so happy for you. Like, if you need any advice negotiating the term sheet, if you need anything else done, absolutely here for you. Please feel free to contact me. But like, if you're already happy, what's the point in me going and doing a ton of work? Either they come around and go, well, no, actually, I'm not happy. Well, what's wrong with the five term sheets that you have? So there's a lot of career incentives to fighting it out on competitive deals and the long-term incentive is to actually find shit that other people think is crap and invest. Jesus, 
find good companies that other people have overlooked was a more politically correct statement. Those are the founders where, again, it's like, oh, how'd you end up in that? And it's like, I literally met the founder and no one else wanted to talk to them. But the incentive is not to do those deals. It's to do the other ones. And I think that's a really important thing to balance. And you do have to do some of the competitive ones to give you the latitude to do the ones that nobody else wants. Third and final question, and the most broader scope one probably, which is what should we expect in the future from Finn? For me? Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm at the point now about three years in where like some of my companies are shutting down, some of them are starting to accelerate. And again, like we've been at Frontline, we've been doing quite a lot of investments. So I think the future for me is partly trying to figure like B2B software is not going to be the golden goose forever. Like it's going to be saturated. Like we're already looking in niches and verticals around that. So like I'm spending more, more and more time like trying to figure stuff out, like what's going to be interesting, where might the world go, what's happening like right now and today that can give you an insight into that. But yeah, no, I've definitely like gone back and forth on like, do you want to be a founder? Do you want to be an operator? Do you want to be an investor? If you can be a good investor and you can really help companies, it's like one of the best jobs in the world. So I would say, hopefully you'll still be seeing me doing this for a reasonably long time and writing kind of like cranky articles about like various topics <sighs> that have given me some sort of grief about the industry over the last little while. Do you see B2B SaaS being gravitating towards private equity like structures because part of it is so saturated you can see the path forward? The benefit of SaaS is like after you're past the kind of early volatility and like early churn phase and you actually get into kind of steady state growth, for the customers, like you're almost like a utility. It's really yeah. hard to pull you out. It can be done, but like the best SaaS companies figure out ways of... And again, I think it's why all everyone hates enterprise SaaS because like... The incentive is to make it impossible for you to remove them. Like, that's the goal. Because once you see the utility, they're never going to stop paying. And, like, I think those returns, it's like you're seeing with Pipe and ClearCut, you know, people pre-funding SaaS contracts because it is kind of like pre-funding utility bills. It's easy to underwrite the credit. It's easy to kind of go after people. I still think there's a ton of appetite in public market investors. Like, part of the reason I think you're seeing some PE buyouts is um, the way you make public SaaS really attractive is you go in and like got the engineering team because you don't really need that many of them to keep it going and you just invest in sales and marketing. And it's the kind of stuff you'd rather do as a private company than you would in public. The benefit of PE interest in SaaS is there's going to be a whole bunch of companies that kind of sort of flatline on growth and they're growing like 5% to 10% a year, but they're doing like, you know, good, like 40% operating margins, like the businesses are sound. And I think that creates an exit pathway that still produces a good exit for the early stage investors. Not if they're raising it like 200x ARR multiples, then you've just closed the door. There's only really one way out for you. SaaS as a business model, it can be applied to tons and tons and tons of different things. There's good opportunities for P, there's good public market appetite. There's good like securitization of the underlying contract. Like there's loads of different ways that SaaS companies can fund themselves and grow. I think the problem for SaaS is you have incumbent vendors who've like really dug themselves in. You have this like huge proliferation of horizontal tool. Like even like in fintech right now, there's like, like 16 expense management companies that are worth over a billion dollars. Like it blows my mind. And like it's that kind of stuff where you're like, okay, all those investors are assuming there's going to be like 
10, like, you know, they're all assuming they're all going to be $10 billion companies. So like, do we assume there's at least $160 billion in enterprise value and expense management? And then you're like, well, you think about it like that, I'm like, if you think about it, like, probably, like, there's so <laughs> much, there is so much of these, like, cross-business models of whether it's fintech plus SaaS, developer tools, like, usage-based pricing plus SaaS. I think, like, the blending of the business models can keep it interesting for a while. And as software penetration hits different verticals, like, like the energy sector is massively underpenetrated, like, utilities, oil and gas is massively underpenetrated, probably for the right reasons, because it's on the way down. But, like, you know, government is still relatively underpenetrated. Yeah. Um, so, like, we're going to see SaaS play out. And I think there's, like, another five years of, like, rich pickings in SaaS. There's 10 years of very savvy investors continuing to make a lot of money in SaaS. And then after that point, like, I, yeah, I just don't know. But it's like, it feels like the, sure, like there's people running crypto edge funds who've like YOLO'd in like 200x gains this year. Me and my me and my SaaS companies, like I'm happy with how they're doing. None of them are on that like insane trajectory. Uh -huh. And it's yeah. very hard for a SaaS company to go on that insane trajectory now to the same extent that a fintech can or as some other like transaction-based business model can. What's your next fund? As I said, Martian property. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm running into the real speculative games. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're going to be, I'd say next year, we'll be at least thinking about raising a new fund. So it's uh, it's still early days in terms of what we're going to do. But like that's what we're spending a lot of time thinking about as a team. Is like, what's the focus area going to be? What's the strategy going to be? What kind of check sizes do we want to write? How far ahead in the market do we have to think? We're at the sort of thinking stage now. Will you uh, keep the seed and frontline seed and frontline next mm. distinction? Or yeah, definitely. Like I think it's like the value proposition for U.S. founders to expand into Europe is just very clear in the frontline next side of things. Like it makes sense why you get allocation. It makes sense why they want to have us bought in. And on the seed side of things, it's like tangential. It's like oh great, you have access to these U.S. operating yeah. networks. You have access to talent on the ground. But like in reality, what a seed founder wants is a fund and a group of people who are going to answer their WhatsApps late at night there who can connect them to like early advisors who can help them figure out product market fit. So I think because the propositions are so different, it's just yeah, good. It's to, yeah. It's good to keep it separate and good to keep the vehicles there. And it's just great having that like depth of experience across both teams and just to be able to kind of help each other when we need it. Because I think like, again, as you get into being a like multi-stage fund with no real distinction and like individual value propositions based on individual GPs, it just gets kind of like messy, not messy, but like what's the, like I'm taking a $150 million check from you or I'm taking a $1.5 million check yeah, from you, yeah. but it's the same GP. Like who's, what's the distinction and how much time are they going to spend on them versus on me? We had the same talk with another team that said that it felt just weird to sit in the GP meeting and then be talking first, spending half an hour discussing a 500,000 check mm. and then a half hour spend on designing due diligence <laughs> uh, costs for 500,000. Oh yeah, yeah, like, that's the thing. Like, if you're writing a hundred and fifty million dollar check, like yeah. spending like half a million dollars on the doing the deal is actually yeah. kind of reasonable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Nah, sorry, we went a bit over time here. No worries. No, no worries at all. Don't worry. I'm happy to take the time to always chat to you guys. Finn, thanks a million for joining us today. It was a super funny for us to have you here. Uh, we love you guys at the frontline team. So uh, thanks a million. Mm, no worries. No, thanks so much for having me on. And like, yeah, the frontline team. 
of UVC as well. So as the new frontline generation start getting up, they can come to you and they can probably complain about me. So <laughs> for sure. <laughs> we'll enjoy that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.